been a while. We had some family in town. Was required to go to the beach a bunch of times, swim in the ocean a lot. So wasn't really inclined to record as much. Was busy with other things, but got some stuff on my mind. Uh, I'll start with football season coming up. I made a tweet, and I and this is true that I have Saquon Barkley as my number two running back after a distant second behind Jonathan Taylor. But if I look at it, you know, opportunity skills, I think the situation is going to be a lot better on the Giants. He's my number two. I, I don't like uh, GQ model Christian McCaffrey to stay healthy. I know you could say the same about Barkley, but McCaffrey's very small. Barkley has the, the build for it, I think, a little bit more. I mean, none of the other guys, you know, Eckler, Henry, Najee Harris maybe, but the situation's not great. I don't even know if Najee Harris is that good. So I'm going with Barkley as my second back. But it's got some responses going. I set up a, an NFBC beat Chris List League. People are asking if I'm doing any football content this fall. And I've been, I've been wrestling with that because, you know, I've been on this deadline during football season. I just five columns a week, every week, have to be home on Sunday, watch six hours straight, and then catch the, uh, the morning games on, on Rewind. And, you know, it could be worse. But I was maybe thinking I was going to take a break from, you know, writing up every game and, you know, just all the, the grind of football season that I've done for, I don't know, 22 years, 23 years. But on the other hand, I, I'm going to watch football and I'm going to have thoughts about football. So I'm going to obviously have stuff to say about it anyway. And so am I going to do a, some football posts on chrislist.com? problem with chrislist.com is that I talk about all this other stuff about what's going on in the world. And we'll get to some of that, obviously, on this podcast. And so just throwing in football articles it's a little weird. It doesn't really fit with everything I'm doing. And that, that is kind of just a challenge in general. Like the reason people know my modest following, the reason they know who I am is through football and through fantasy sports. And then my interests have lied elsewhere uh, the last couple of years. And so some people are interested in that and like that. But, you know, most people know me um, through RotoWire. So it's kind of a dilemma of like, here's what I'm interested in, but Here's something that I know and that I am interested in also, but just it's not as pressing for me and how to balance those two things. And it's just kind of odd to have one site where you're reading about fantasy football and then you're reading about totalitarianism in the next article. It doesn't really, I don't know how much it goes together. So, and then my site, you know, like it's, it's, it's nice. And I, I love the, the tech guys behind it and stuff, but I was thinking maybe just start like a sports substack, you know, just a, a fantasy sports substack. Anyone who has contributed to the site would be somehow I'd have to figure out how to do this. Grandfathered in, they, they could go for free. They can get everything for free because they've already basically paid. I don't want them to have to pay twice. And then, you know, everyone else could just subscribe if they're interested. So I might do that. That's kind of what I'm thinking about doing. I will almost certainly do a snarky 150, my top 150 with the real ranking snarky comments that I used to do for Rotowire. They sue me with, for using snarky. I can substitute another word. I don't think they're going to care very much. And so I'll do the snarky 150 and I can get a little bit more snarky because I had to be a little careful in recent years when I'm publishing it on Rotowire not to run afoul of the many censors, not, not at Rotowire. And I have to say, like, just in retrospect, those guys at Rotowire were just incredibly, for a corporation that had partners that were corporate partners, were just incredibly tolerant of the shit I was saying and doing. And of course that, that's, should be the norm. That's not like, you know, that's just like, you know, of course, free speech should be a norm, but, it's, but it isn't, it isn't uh, across most places. So the more distance I have, the more I appreciate those guys, you know, Jeff Erickson, Peter Shanky, T 
Tim Schuler, Herb Ilk. It, it was about as good of a work environment as you could have had. So uh, just just reflecting on that a little bit. But anyway, but I but I was self-censoring. It wasn't them. It was, you know, I was an owner also, and I didn't want uh, to lose business because of something I wrote. So I don't have that problem anymore. So we'll see if there's if it gets a little a uh, little more dark humor in there. But I'll definitely have free reign to make some uh, some jokes about some of the stuff that NFL players do that maybe I had to stay away from a little bit that was posted on RotoWire. So there'll be that. And then the question is, you know, do I do Survivor stuff? So I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. The other thing is that I'm leaving for the States in a week. So that's going to be draining, exhausting travel. And I don't know how much I'll be doing in the intervening week. But the Beat Christmas League is this Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern. I don't know if it's full yet. I haven't checked. But if you want a piece of that, you can get a piece of that. Can't get a free subscription to RotoWire if you beat me. It's funny because Alan Sislowski used to, I don't know why, you know, I'd have some good years, but he'd always be in the league and he's a good player too, but he'd always be in the league that my team wasn't very good. So he'd always finish ahead of me. And I guess he got some free RotoWire time, but now I don't work at RotoWire, so I can't offer the time and he does. So he doesn't need the time. He's already got free time. So Alan, you're probably going to lose to me this year because uh, there's nothing at stake. You can't get the free time on RotoWire anymore. Not only can you not get it for me, you already have it for yourself. So it's uh, the roles have reversed. And so I'll probably take him down. Ball started rolling because I made one football tweet. And then, you know, that that started the, the ball rolling. Uh, but I am kind of big on the Giants. And I think when I'm in Vegas this summer, I'm going to the RotoWire trip for a couple of days in July. I think I'm going to put a futures bet on the Giants to win the Super Bowl, win the NFC and win the NFC East. And I'm going to I don't know if I can get a, a price on Saquon MVP, but it's got to be like 150 to one or something crazy. Right. Put 100 bucks down on that. Here's my thesis is that basically the commanders, is that their name? Their stupid name now? They suck. And then the Eagles, look at the Eagles, like, you know, Jalen Hurts is mediocre. I, I don't know how good they're going to be. And then really Dallas is the best team, but I think Dak is a bit of a stat patter. They lost Amari Cooper. Their offensive line isn't what it was a few years ago. So, you know, their defense is, is a lot better that they, Dallas is still the favorite for sure. But that's also why you can get a good price. You know, Mike McCarthy is still the coach. So I think Dallas is okay, but I do not see them as like a top five or top seven NFL team. So I think the Giants getting uh, offensive linemen in the first round, Andrew Thomas played better last year. If they, their offensive line is, is decent and there's a legitimate offensive brain trust there, which there may be now, then this team could win the NFC East. And then once you win the NFC East, you look at the NFC, it's not that good, right? I mean, Brady, if, if Gronk really is retired, if Godwin's out several weeks, that offense is not going to be anything special. Dominican Sue's probably not going to be back for the Bucks. You know, they're, they're the overwhelming favorite in the South, but you look at those teams, you know, Rogers still there in Green Bay, but they lost Devontae Adams. Who's he going to throw to? West is pretty strong, but the Rams, they mortgaged a lot of their future. And... Seattle's dead. Arizona, I don't really trust. So, you know, you're looking at maybe the, the Niners will be good this year, but for some reason they get hurt. They get so many injuries every year. Maybe that was just a fluke, but you know, there's not a lot of teams in the NFC that are that dangerous. So if you have a futures bet on a team like the Giants at whatever insane uh, number you'll get, if they even make it to the Super Bowl against what's probably going to be a stronger AFC team, you can hedge that easily. So I think I'm going to make a futures bet on the Giants. I don't think Danny Dimes is going to be able is good enough, but let's just see. He's shown sparks at times. This guy isn't Sam Darnold. He's actually shown a spark at times. And 
if there's a good offensive line and a decent system behind him, who knows? Maybe uh, he'll be adequate. You know, Nick Foles won a Super Bowl in a good system. So I like, I just like the value. Obviously, most likely they'll finish in like second or third place in their division, not make the playoffs. But if the number's right, then I'll, I will make a futures bet on them. Anyway, uh, I'll have football thoughts that I'll intersperse with my other stuff um, periodically. It's just, that's just one challenge, like how to make it not too weird to have read about fantasy football and read about totalitarianism, you know, one article to the next. Uh, a couple things, I'm working on a couple pieces. One of them is called Good. And it's basically trying to get in the mind of, you know, your usual good person, your conscientious democratic voting neoliberal who is you know certainly not racist and certainly not transphobic and you know just wants people to get along and doesn't really see the big deal about wearing a mask i mean what's the big deal i mean we don't know for sure that they work but you know it's not a big ask just in case why not just do it out of common courtesy to make people feel comfortable is it, is it that big of a deal i mean do you have to be is your freedom so important that you can't just do the compassionate thing the courteous thing i mean really yeah, your freedom not to, to put something on your face or not, it's such a big deal to you. Don't even get me started on the vaccine, right? I mean, it's like, of course, it saves so many people. And to even argue this at this point is ridiculous. It's, it's obvious that it's, it's worked so well and it's safe. And if you're not getting it at this point, you're just an asshole. You don't really care about the spread of this disease. And I, and I know that, you know, vaccinated people can catch it. But just think about how much worse it would be if, if we didn't have it. I'm trying to get into that mindset that... Uh, team good mindset. And, and I'm trying to do it real, you know, not mocking. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to echo the actual thoughts a person in that situation would have. And I sent it to Heather, a draft of it. And she said, uh, the problem is this is, this sounds too sensible. Like, like people are going to read this and think you think this, there's not enough irony. So I got to figure out how to, because, you know, because people are going to read it and be like, yeah, I agree. I agree with this. And they're not going to see the limitations of it. So I'm trying to, but I want to keep it real. I don't want to like, you know, give them a belief I don't believe they have. You know, I don't think most of the team good people would come out and say, oh, we need to put a gun to your head and shove a vaccine in you against your will. I don't think they, most, some of them would, but most of them would not be saying that. They'd say, no, 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 no. Obviously we're not going to force anybody. No one's being forced, but you know, you have to have consequences. I mean, your civic duty has consequences. You know, you have a seatbelt laws. You know, you will get a ticket if you don't wear a seatbelt. They think that's a good analogy. They, they think that I want to I actually write it so it's what actually they think. And almost if one of them were reading it being like, yeah, how's this mocking anybody? This is, and I'm not really mocking them, actually. I'm not, mockery isn't, it's fun, it's satisfying, but it's not really strategically very smart. So I, I more just want to get into that thought process, show like, yes, I understand these thoughts. I understand. And maybe I don't, maybe I'm wrong about what they think, but I feel like I understand them pretty well. And this sort of simple simplifying of the world. Yeah. You know, there was a pandemic. I mean, I'm not going to money, money quarterback these guys trying to do their best. People are dying. I mean, they're doing whatever they can and yeah, it's not perfect. And science, you know, science is slow. We don't, you know, we have to wait for the data to come in. It's not obvious right away. You know, science takes a decent sample size. So you can't just, you know, of course they're going to make errors, but they're doing their best. Not everyone's out to get you. You know, our institutions aren't perfect. These are just public servants. And yes, there's some bad apples, but they're really doing their best. I think that's what they think. I mean, I think that's how they see it. I and mean, I'm trying to write it persuasively, but sort of 
unearth some of the assumptions, the hidden notions that aren't really being brought to the front that are conveniently, uh, what does it mean that there'll be consequences if you don't do this thing that we want you to do? If you don't take this medicine that we want, what does it mean? What, what do consequences mean? Who, who's going to enact those consequences? What if people don't agree with you? What is that? You know, let's, let's, let's game it out, you know, because it's very easy in your mind to say something like, oh, there'll be consequences. There should be consequences. I mean, let's game this out. Like, what do you actually mean? Because a lot of it just is this vague platitudes that sound good. But if you think about what it means where you can't get a job if you hold a certain political view or you can't, you know, anywhere, if you can't get a job, if you don't take the medicine required, you know, Pfizer's latest product that's required by the employer, even if you've worked there for a long time. I mean, there were literally people in my feed last year when DeAndre Hopkins intimated that he wasn't going to take the vaccine saying, well, then let him quit. And I'd be like, oh, so this guy who's trained his whole life, he's an elite athlete and trained his whole life should be forced to just give up his entire livelihood that he's since he was a kid, that that's all he's done because he won't inject something that Pfizer wants him to eject. And that the, his employer saying they just were like, well, if that's the law, that's how it goes. And let's, let's game this out, like what you really believe about this, because it's, you know, to me, that sounds like not Trump's a fascist. That's just empty words. But like, no, that sounds like fascism. You're trying to dictate what people need to put in their body just to maintain their livelihood. And it's, I guess if you're selling insurance for a couple of years and you switch jobs to some other product, um, that's not the same thing really as like an athlete who's trained his whole life in the skill and at the peak of his powers. Although in Hopkins case, you could say past his peak. And in Hopkins case, you could also just defend him. You say, hey, you know, he's doing the roids and you can't mix a vaccine in the roids. You know, that's, that's not a good mix. So seriously, it was, uh, you, just, you just see sort of the true sort of fascistic, and I mean that literally fascist as, you know, you know, some political thing, but just like forcing people, you know, that's fascism to me. I, I see it in myself when I don't want to do something and I'm like, you got to do this. You have to record this podcast. You have to write. You have to do this. You have to, you know, I see it with my kid as a parent, I tell Sasha, you got to do this. You got to do that. You know, I'm not persuading her as a parent. You know, I, I'm not saying I, I don't believe in the hippie parenting style where, oh, you know, what a precious angel. You know, if she doesn't want to do anything, she doesn't have to do it. I, I believe like parents have to step in. But, you know, there's a fine line and, and I will catch myself being a bit fasci fascistic in my approach. So literally, you know, I, that's what I see in that. I see a fascist comply with the corporate medical rules, no matter what, you know, comply with what your state is telling you, comply with the edicts of the pharmaceutical company bought legislators and administrators. So yeah, so that's, that's something that I'm, I'm working on. We'll see if I can deliver it. It's uh, it's kind of a, a subtle thing. A couple other things I, I talked about doing a deeper dive in the, into the financial system as a whole. And I think a lot of people have kind of done it, but I always find the explanations kind of wanting. I don't totally understand it, but I read a, a good piece by Lynn Alden. I recommend fo uh, following her. She's a uh, Bitcoiner, sort of a macro financial analyst. She's on a lot of podcasts. She's pretty prominent in the financial Twitter space. And she's just kind of a clear thinker and explains things pretty well. And one thing that she mentioned in a recent article was that it's sort of like unbacked liabilities all the way down in the system. So if you think about it, you have a bank account, but that bank account is just sort of your bank's liability, right? They're just sort of like, okay, you have $100,000 in the bank and 
on their balance sheet, that's a liability. It's a debt that they owe to you and that you can draw on that debt. And as long as our, everybody doesn't do it at the same time, that money's there. And then the bank has money that they have, but those are liabilities on the Fed's balance sheet. So the bank can draw from the Fed and issue loans off that. And then I think the Fed collateralizes that with treasuries. They buy treasuries from the, uh, from the US Treasury, the bonds. Uh, but then they, what's their liability to the Fed? I guess they have to pay the bonds, pay the interest rate to the Fed. And then who's paying that? Well, the taxpayers are paying that. The taxpayers, if they could issue more bonds, but who's going to buy the, if China, which is reducing their US bonds it, and there's not enough customers for the bonds and the Fed ends up buying the bonds. And then the taxpayers have to pay the interest on that. It's just kind of like unbacked liability. It's a kind of circular, right? All the way down. And yeah, your taxpayers are paying the, the interest on, on the money that the treasury, on the treasury bills, but those same taxpayers are owed the money from the banks who are owed the money from the Fed and the Fed is owed money by the treasury and the people are paying the treasury. It seems kind of circular, right? So as long as uh, they keep printing more money and, and nobody needs it all at once or enough people don't need it all at once or nobody calls their bluff, they can keep interest rates pretty low. But the problem is, then you start having inflation. We already have. And so they want to raise interest rates and they're raising it very little, you know, a couple of basis points, three basis points. And these markets are crashing and the economy is slowing down. And so they can't really raise it also because not only is everybody going to need liquidity to pay off all the debts, but which is going to disappear when they raise rates, but all the debt that's owed is going to get much more expensive. And so they can't really raise rates and the system needs to keep it low, keep the money flowing. And it's because it, it grows exponentially, it keeps having to print more and more money. And the chances that something breaks gets larger each time because there's more of a percentage of productive capacity of GDP that is needed to service this ever-growing debt. And so I think that's, I probably didn't explain it that well, but I sort of got that idea that each thing is borrowing from the other thing, collateral, not really collateralized. I mean, it's collateralized by more debt. So it's just kind of circular. And when you sit there with Bitcoin and it's fixed supply and the ability to audit the entire system on your node from home, you just start to think this is the future. This has got to win. This other thing's dying, whether or not Bitcoin exists. But if Bitcoin doesn't exist, then they probably just have a jubilee, all the debts are reset, and they just do a central bank digital currency where you have an account at the central bank, not your commercial bank. And, you know, it's just kind of like you need everything needs to be approved, right? Instead of having the bank, your private bank, where you know you they can they can also they're only open certain hours, they can also not give you the money if you're Julian Assange or you're Russia or you're Canadian trucker. They can freeze your account or the government can order them to freeze your account. But that's much better than just like one central account with the government and the people in power at that time. If you're a dissident or you're doing stuff that they don't want, you exist basically at their whim. You know, you, you basically have a credit with them. That's why Michael Saylor says Bitcoin is money. Everything else is credit. And credit's fine when your creditors are good. When you know a person is trustworthy and can pay you back, that's good. But do you trust big banks? I was thinking about this. Let's say you, you lent money to a friend and he was kind of a deadbeat, did a lot of drugs, you know, was kind of hit or miss. You, you might lend that money and say, well, I lent him 500 bucks or a thousand bucks and I, I hope to get it back. 
but I don't expect to get it back. Like I'm not going to count that as my, as a real asset on my personal balance sheet, the loan I made to him. But let's say some billionaire owes you $10 million and for some reason it's set up so that it's paid in installments and you're like, I'm good. Or say your boss is a billionaire, you know, and he pays you X amount and you're like, I'm good. I'm set. You know, this guy's good for it. You think I'm rich. I'm, I'm good. But you're really only as rich or as set as that guy is credit worthy. And if he has other liabilities, you know, he gets sued for something or the business takes a bad turn, suddenly you're in peril. So it doesn't really matter. I mean, it does matter how well capitalized your debtor is, right? Your bank or whatever, but you still just have credit. It's just credit that you hope they're solvent. And then you're like, well, my bank's FDIC insured. So if they go bust, then they'll, you know, up to 250K or whatever it is, I'll still have that money. But you know, it's kind of like getting earthquake insurance in Florida. I mean, hurricane insurance in Florida, earthquake insurance in California. It's like, oh no, I'm fine. I'm insured. I have earthquake insurance. I don't even know if they sell that stuff anymore. If the event happens, it's not like you're the only one, right? It's not like health insurance where, you know, your death, well, with pandemics, who knows, or with poisonings, who knows, but you know, it's not like a, an insurance or an you know, auto insurance where you get into an accident and that doesn't make other people get into accidents. There's no risk. Your accident doesn't make it more likely that Geico or whatever is insolvent. But in a hurricane in Miami wipes out the whole city, then your needing the, you know, the insurance to kick in coincides with everybody else needing it. And there's a very good chance the insurer goes bust. And same thing with earthquakes in California, whereas you know, car insurance is different. So, you know, be careful who is your the debtor. Be careful who you lend credit to, whether that person has plenty of money for you, for your meager account, but whether there's collective risk where if everybody, so that's what we're basically doing. It's all kind of insurance, right? Your, your bank account's kind of like insurance. And it, it's like, well, if I need it, it's there. Plan to leave it, but if I need it, it's there. But it just exists if, if those systems are solvent. And one of the ways to become insolvent, barring a huge you know, 2008 style liquidity event where there's contagion and everything goes down, is the response to that, which is printing more money. Yes, the bank will have your money, but your money will be worth less and less. And so the other thing that's interesting is every time inflation goes up, the markets go down or Bitcoin goes down, people thought, hey, I thought Bitcoin was an inflation hedge. Like, what the hell? But it's more of a hyperinflation hedge. It's not an inflation hedge. And the reason is that every time there's inflation, the market expects the Fed to tighten in response to it. And that tightening is what's sending the price down of not, you know, not just Bitcoin, but stocks. And again, I talked about this in the last podcast, you know, stocks haven't dropped as much as Bitcoin, not nearly as much, but also the stocks, you know, everyone thinks the Fed put is going to save them. Whereas Bitcoin, there's nobody going to save Bitcoin except people who want it on the free market. So it's a real market. There's real price discovery, right? It's like people dump it and those who believe and understand it will buy it at a certain point, but they're not going to, there's no like giant government with massive amounts of liquidity going to step in and be like, oh, it can't drop below 30,000. We can't let that happen. No, it will drop as low as it goes and you just got to deal with it. But the other thing that makes me really bullish about Bitcoin is I don't really worry about the price that much. I mean, A, you shouldn't be, you know, 100% all in in Bitcoin unless you're a real man. As I said, I'm not a real man. Uh, I still want to be able to pay my fiat bills while that system is still intact. It's not really intact, but while that system is still the one that we largely transact with. But I don't really sweat the price that much because 
the, the price of, of something is just like the latest exchange rate between parties. And so I don't know how much Bitcoin is for sale, but these liquidations make a lot of it for sale pretty quickly when these crypto fraud companies uh, go bust. Okay, so there's a lot of sellers, price goes down, but how much Bitcoin is that? You know, 100,000 Bitcoin, 50,000 Bitcoin out of 21 million or whatever, 19 million, whatever's in circulation right now. How many people who are the hardcore hodlers, which might be, you know, owning 10 million of those coins, how many of them are going to dump it if it goes down? I, I think there's a larger and larger contingent that are, I'm not selling this shit. This is the future. This is, this is my life savings that will not be debased by governments. This is the, the only uh, money I can ever have that can't be arbitrarily frozen from me in my account or not, you know, they don't take your money or whatever. I think there's more and more people believe that. And those people are never selling. So you're not going to get their coins at 20 grand, even if the price is 20 grand. You're going to get the marginal seller coins at 20 grand. They're they're in it for the long haul. It's a religion, you know. I mean, this is this is it. They're not they're not selling. In in 2017, when there were a lot fewer Bitcoiners, the price went up to 20k, and it dumped all the way down to about 3k. It was the 2018. I know it dropped near 3k in um, 2020 during that you know the COVID crash, and apparently 86 percent of the people who had the coins, had Bitcoin in 2017 at the top, never sold. The trading was only 14% of the people. They never sold. And now it's a bigger contingent. There's more people who also are buying and selling, but there's also just pure numbers, more hodlers, more people who are just like, this is it. I'm never selling. So if you think the price is really 20,000, it is 20,000 if you want to buy a couple of coins and it might be a good time to buy. I don't know. It could go down further. I I have no, I honestly have no idea in the short term. There's more uh, wreckage from the scammers or if this is the bottom, I don't know. But if you want to get into 20 or 15 or 10 or whatever it ends up going down to, or this may be the bottom, you, you can now, but not everybody will be able to get in. There's a lot of people like, well, I want to see if this is, can bounce back, even though it's bounced back so many times, but I want to make sure. And so then it goes up to 30 and they're like, eh, I want to wait a little longer. It goes up to 40. And then it's like, okay, maybe I'll get in. And then a bunch of people want to get in because now they're trust it again. And then it's all of a sudden it's 60, you know, and, and it's at a hundred. I mean, that's kind of how it works is like, everyone says, oh, buy when there's blood in the streets, but when there's blood in the streets, nobody wants it. You know, that's, it's just human nature, right? You loved it at 60, you hated it at 20, but the fundamentals are better than ever. So I, I don't know. And, and that's the other thing, right? Like I wrote this and I think this is true. Find out what's true and what's bullshit because what's true doesn't really depend on short-term public opinion. You know, Warren Buffett said in the short term, the market's a voting machine and in the long term, it's a weighing machine. And a lot of times price action means something, right? You think, well, this is bullshit. It's going down, but I love this company. It's still a good company. I'm going to buy it. And sometimes you're right. But sometimes the market is smarter than you and, and price action is information. It is information. But... And it's a case like this where there's liquidations based on macroeconomic factors and scams and some of these exchanges uh, over leveraging and people going 20x leverage and, and losing it. I don't see anything fundamental about this. I just see this as flushing out a lot of the bad, the weak hands and the bad debt and the people who over leveraged. And so what's true, you know, and you go back to, well, why is this money needed? Well, because if you, you support the wrong causes, the wrong parties or the wrong you're on the wrong side of team good, um, they can freeze your money and this, this can't be frozen. And then the technology is good and it's easier to pay with lightning now and 
you can buy a coffee with lightning and you can take your money across borders, memorizing, you know, 12 or 24 where, I mean, there's just so many things amazing about this. You can audit the entire system. It can't be diluted. You look at the fundamentals and the adoption rate and you're like, oh, this is, this is true. This is right. So this is, you know, I'll, I'll trust the weighing machine on this one. It, the voting machine is the short-term market price, but I'll trust the weighing machine. I'll trust the long-term utility of this thing. And as bad as it is for us, and you see the Canadian truckers and you see Russia's, uh, you know, reserves, foreign reserves being frozen and you got to comply. Otherwise, your money's not money. It's credit, right? And they can just say, you know what? Uh, we don't like you anymore. You're bad. Credit dries up. As bad as it is in the U.S., it's way worse in places like Zimbabwe and Venezuela. And, and their need for hard money is not even like, oh, when do I get into this? I don't know. I'll, no, I'll just stick with dollars. There is much more of an emergency because they... They literally have their money printed into oblivion and Banana Republic seizing stuff. And now you have something that's very, very hard to seize and it's compelling. And then as more countries adopt it, as more people adopt it, there's a game theory problem where if you're last in, you're getting at a much higher price. And I wrote a piece a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, called Black Hole. And it is like a black hole that just sucks in energy. And, you know, it, it's sort of like a weird black hole where you can retrieve the amount of energy uh, that you had in proportion to the black hole at the time it went in. So if you wait till later where the black hole gets really big and powerful, you're going to have a very small amount of energy relative to the black hole and you won't be able to retrieve much of it. But if you get in now while your personal you know, monetary energy is worth something still and you can retrieve quite a bit of it. And the fact that when the black hole gets bigger, your percentage of the black hole will be bigger too. And so there's this horrible game theory problem for people who don't like it because... The longer they wait, the worse it's going to get. So it's like this terrifying black hole is eating everything and they're trying to escape it. But the people who give in sooner are going to be rewarded. So that's it's just is what it is. Physics is ruthless. This is one of those things where you might want to uh, get in earlier rather than later. But again, short term, I don't know. Don't, don't look at me. I'm just talking about fundamentals, about what it does. And the voting machine is fickle. But my point is that you know when things are real people's short-term opinions really don't mean anything. When things are fake, people's short-term opinions are everything. And that's why these scam coins and these Ponzi's, this Luna and these interest-bearing coins and this Web3 NFT metaverse bullshit, those things completely depend on public opinion. And so if people say, ah, oh, NFTs, well, why would I collect this bullshit NFT? That's it, it's over. If opinions change, that's over. But Bitcoin opinions can fluctuate in the short term, but the long term, what does it do? How is it as a money? Why does it work as a money? What are the properties of it that work? And if you read some of Safety Amus's books, he makes the case what money is, why gold was such a good money, and why Bitcoin's a better money. And you know, again, it, it's it's sort of like what's true and what's false. And if you know what's true, then you know what to do. And if you know what's false, you know what to do. If you know what's false, you're just sort of depending on everybody else's opinion. And isn't this kind of similar to beliefs, right? Like if, if you're a type of person who just depends on the opinions of others, if your self-esteem, if your status in life, your job just depends on the corporation thinking you're a good guy or your colleagues thinking you're a good person, then you'll believe any bullshit, no matter how absurd. Uh, a woman can have a 12-inch dick. You could believe anything. You know, uh, you'll believe whatever you need to believe because whatever the belief system that's required, that's what you depend on. And so you're just at the whims of people's opinions. And if, if they change their mind tomorrow and, and say, actually, no, women are 
biologically distinct and you have to be born a woman to be, you know, somebody who can give birth, then they'll believe that. They'll go back to believing that if that's what their colleagues believe. They'll just believe whatever they need to believe in order to maintain their status socially and professionally. And so if you're a person like that, then whatever scam, whether it's a monetary scam or a you know, sociological scam, you're going to go along with. But if you're a person who takes their self-esteem from trying to live within some semblance of truth and honesty, integrity, then you're going to be more able to withstand the short-term idiocy that whoever, I don't know who's funding this. I can't, I can't imagine a lot of these beliefs arose organically. They make no sense. I, I would think this is some AstroTurf shit that's been fun, like literally funded. But you can just say, that's bullshit. I'm not going to go along with that. You know, I'm not going to pretend January 6th is fucking 9-11. I'm not going to pretend, you know, a bunch of, you know, yahoos rioting at the Capitol and after they were let in and nobody got killed except that one of the rioters. I'm not going to pretend that's some serious threat to our democracy. It's the threat to our democracy. I don't know. How do they get that line? Oh, it's a, it's a, this is a, the end of our democracy. This is a, a threat to democracy itself. We can't let this person be president because that would be a threat to democracy. No, that's the opposite. It's, it literally is democracy. Someone you not, don't like being elected. That's literally democracy. You are the threat to democracy. You trying to silence people is a threat to democracy. It's not that democracy is not people that you think are good. That's not what democracy means. But actually somebody wrote this and I wish I'd remembered, I'd give them credit. But they were like, what they're saying is democracy. They mean oligarchy. And what they mean by, and what actually is democracy is populism. And populism, they call fascism, but that's actually democracy. So democracy is fascism and, and, and oligarchy is democracy. That's sort of, you know, it's like, yeah, it is a threat to the oligarchy if this other person wins. People actually want these things. They want better economic conditions. They want safe neighborhoods. They want police to be in neighborhoods. They want free speech. These kind of things are populist now and that's what democracy is, is populism and what, the, what they're calling democracy what the laptop class calls democracy is really oligarchy that favors them oh you know we want our student loans paid off it's funny i saw another tweet that i thought was good uh somebody said why is there no push to have like trade school loans paid off like you know people who paid to learn to be an electrician or a plumber then went to trade school he had to learn that at some point maybe just apprentice for somebody else work for them but where you went to a trade school because those trade schools delivered on their promise, right? They were way less expensive than liberal arts universities and people who you know, graduated got jobs and made good money. So they're not like, I need my money back. They're like, no, I got it. It's the $60,000 a year or $40,000 a year, whatever it is now, liberal arts education that you went four years from and you're a you know, gender studies major and there's just not that many jobs available for you. I mean, there's a couple at colleges, universities, there's the gender studies professor job but there's not enough of those for all of the people who majored in that. It sucks for them, but that's just the reality. So they want their money back. And I understand why they want their money back. They got a little bit of a raw deal, but that was a bad choice. I mean, what about people who have medical debt? What about forgiving that? That's not even their choice. You know, you got into a car accident and your insurance sucked. That's not your fault, but they're not getting forgiven that. Medical debt would be good. And what about home debt? Oh, I bought a house. My house... It was overvalued when I bought it. Why can't I, you know, I made that mistake. That oh, was a mistake. Why are we forgiving this one class of debts? Well, it's because that's the party in power. That's the people who largely support that party. They want to give away something to their base, it seems like. 
And then also like, you know, when, when they forgive, they, the, you know, people in power forgive, it's not they, it's not their money. It's our money. It's taxpayer money. So why should I give my tax money to somebody who made a stupid choice? And again, I feel bad for them. I don't like to see anyone get scammed, but you know, I'm not going to pay for the fact that they got scammed. That's, that's not my responsibility. I, I feel bad. If you want to say that this is a scam, you know, it was fraud and, and someone should be liable, it should be the colleges themselves. Take it from their endowments. Make them fire some of these administrators and dedicate some of their budget to reimbursing the students a portion of the money that they wasted. I think that's legitimate. That's fine. And if, the, if it's adjudicated that it was actual fraud, the point that they're truly under-delivering on what they offered... I'm fine with that. I do think people, even if they were scammed, even if they made a poor choice and should have thought it through, there was fraud involved, then I think they should be able to collect. So have at it, but not from the taxpayer. No, from the colleges themselves, from the endowments. And I think that's something that they're not touching because again, the academia and, and that's supporting the people currently in power and that's their base. They don't want to punish them. That's my view on that. Oh, one last thing, you know, so a, a linebacker on the Ravens died and there was speculation that maybe it was drug related. I don't, there was some unnamed source, Baltimore saying he was, I don't know, I don't know exactly, but it wasn't very clear, but I, I think some people said oh, it was drug related and it could be. And I just want to say when a young person dies and it seems like there's a lot of, remember Demarius Thomas died at 33 and you have these soccer players and all that. Um, I think it's a mistake to just say, oh, that's a, that's a vaccine adverse effect death. We, we don't know individually. We don't individually. It could be drug use. It could be an extremely, extremely rare genetic thing, but that almost never happens uh, with young people. That's just incredibly rare. Anyone under 40 dying of heart attack, stroke, or unnamed causes. If, with a young person, it's usually either drugs, an o OD, or it's probably an adverse effect from the vaccine. But you don't know in each individual case, right? In each individual case, you could be wrong. So I would definitely caution people against saying, oh, this guy passed away tragically. It's, the, it's Pfizer because you're like, it turns out not to be. And it's like, you see, you're just one of those crazy anti-vaxxers who just is blaming all this shit that has nothing to do with it. And, and so I, I think there's legitimate disagreement on why all-cause mortality, especially among younger people, has risen. There's no doubt about this, that all-cause mortality has risen from 2020 to 2021 and it's continued in 2022, especially among you know, people 18 to 65. Insurance company data confirms it. CDC's all-cause -ca mortality numbers confirm it. There is a rise in mortality that's not COVID. You know, what changed? Well, there's this vaccine. So I think that's, to me, that's the most likely candidate. And we know there's been adverse effects. We know in the trial data there were adverse effects and deaths. And we somewhat, there's different people that I read that speculate on the mechanism as to how the spike protein getting into your different organs would, uh, would cause sudden death in younger, healthier people. But I think there's some room for disagreement. At least you can argue about, no, it's not that it's missed cancer screenings or missed this or whatever. You know, I, I, it's not persuasive to me that it's that, especially with younger people and cancer is not the cause of these deaths. It's sort of unexplained or stroke or heart attack usually. You know, I think this is probably causing a lot of deaths, probably. But in each individual case, I think you should be very wary to conclude that because you don't know, right? You don't know in any individual case. It could be an incredibly rare thing that this guy, you know, Hank Gathers died in 1990 or whatever. That was the only one I really remember that was not, at least to my knowledge, drug related. He was also like six foot 10 or something. But again, you know, that, that was a very rare anomalous guy who died very young of a heart attack. And so don't 
hitch yourself to a faulty wagon. You know, don't claim things you don't know. But the overall data is pretty strong that something is going on. And the thing that really kind of blows my mind isn't that people disagree. I think I think it's there's plenty of room to say, well, let's let's look into the cause. Let's not jump to conclusions. I think that's fair. But what is to me just insane is to be incurious, to just be like, oh yeah, all these young people are dying. That's just normal. No, it's not normal. When you grew up, nobody died. There was no like high school friend of mine that I knew that died. There was nobody that I'd even heard of that died of just natural causes at 20, that unexplained causes at 20 or 16 or 25 or 30. Nobody. This to me, at least in my experience, is an extremely recent phenomenon. Now, someone could say, well, you, you weren't on Twitter back then. You know, you weren't as exposed to as much news that was, you know, fine. It's again, it's it's possible, but the all all cause mortality numbers are up, especially among people, you know, significantly up. Like I think it was like 40 percent this insurance company reported. So, you know, the the anecdotes are borne out by the overall data. So to me, something is going on. I don't think there I I think you're in deep denial if if you don't think something is going on. The question is, what is the cause? And the answer is, well, something changed in 2021. And we know one thing that changed. That doesn't mean that's the cause. That means it's a suspect. And again, I, I'm not telling you where to come out on this. I'm telling you, in curiosity, is, it's just, I don't understand. I do understand it, to be honest. It's the normie view of you don't want to think about it because the idea that this were possibly caused by the vaccine would be so disturbing. Not only did you give it to yourself, maybe give it to your kids. A lot of your family and friends have it. I mean, it is extremely disturbing. It disturbs me also to even contemplate that this thing could be killing people in large numbers. And hopefully it's bad batches or it's, you know, a rare, it's not rare enough, right? It's not rare enough if this were true to green light this product, but it's rare in the sense of you personally, if you took it, probably aren't going to drop dead, but it's very disturbing even to contemplate how many people have it, have taken it. And even if it's, you know, one in 10,000 or one in 20,000, that will end up being a huge number of people. And again, it's, you know, COVID, the average age of death for COVID itself was over 80. So it's tragedy when anyone dies. I mean, obviously we, we want people to live as long as humanly possible, but I think it's a bit different if somebody dies at 84 of COVID that may only had a couple of years left, especially if they're already chronically ill and a person who's 25 in the prime of their life who had 50, 60 years left and was in great health. I don't think you can equate those things. Now, I don't think we can get, I don't think we want to get out the measuring stick and say this life and that, you know, it's not up to us and we're not causing it. So we don't have to do that. But I do think that, you know, harm from a virus that is probably lab created and, you know, that's a whole other issue of liability, but that people got accidentally is quite different than harm from a medicine that was mandated or at very least when the mandates kind of failed strongly encouraged by the medical system, I think those are very different propositions. So there's a lot, there's a lot of people don't want to look at this. I think I'll say this to everybody, wherever you come down on this conclusion wise, open your eyes. This is curiosity is important. You know, curiosity is necessary. Don't be incurious about significant, important things going on in your world. Draw the conclusions that you draw based on your research. You know, again, I'm flawed. I may be drawing a conclusion based on my biases and you can't know what my biases are entirely. So you can't know how reliable I am. So you have to do this for yourself, but don't be incurious. If you see reports 
of young people dying here and there. Don't, don't buy the bullshit that, oh, this is normal. You know that's not normal. You know it is not normal for 30-year-olds and 25-year-olds to drop dead of undisclosed causes. No, no one knows. So anyway, I'll just leave on that. I, I just feel like there's a lot of denial going on. It's what you'd expect, but I kind of feel like people listen to this podcast uh, probably aren't in quite as much denial as others because you probably would have stopped listening long ago. All right, that's it. Till next time.